Welcome to Open Mind UFO Radio. I am your host, Alejandro Rojas, and I am with Martin, the perfect gentleman, Willis. <laughs> well, that is so kind of you. Just the way you, you know, you uh, talk about uh, your wife and, and sort of thing. You're just a nice guy, so that's why I, I called you the perfect gentleman. Wow, you are so lying. <laughs> <laughs> Awesome. So, how Thank are you, you doing? Sir. Doing great. Doing great. I'm glad to be here. We good, got good. We, we got pouring rain here in the East Coast. We had a semi a residual of the hurricane going through, I guess. Oh, really? Mm. Oh, you know, man. flooding and everything. Yeah, we we had a lot. I mean, we've had a very very it's wet here, uh, but uh, luckily it it's gotten dry. But now the heat's come back, which is strange. It was chilly for a little while. Now the heat's back and. Oh, the crazy desert. We'll see what happens. Now, those big dust storms, what time of year do those come through Arizona? Those typically, they have been happening right now, um, but they typically happen June, July the most, the big ones. Um, and it's it's kind of funny because they are just dust. It's very similar. It's, it feels like you're inside of your um, vacuum cleaner. They're not wow. like, you know, in the movies, it, they kind of like, oh, we got to run and we got to get away from it because it's going to like shred our skin or something. No, it's not really like that. It's inconvenient and the visibility is mm. low. Yeah. So they're not as um, traumatic, I would say, as the movies make it out to be. But I guess that's the same for everything, huh? Yeah. Yeah. You got to spiff it up to. Yeah. Uh, now, they have a funny name for those storms, right? What are they Haboob. called? Haboob, yeah. That's, I was trying to think of it the other day. Because I met someone from Phoenix um, in Maine, right here, down the road from me. Uh, moved from Phoenix because he said that he was getting ill from things in the dust in Arizona and moved. Isn't that a strange thing? Have you ever heard of anything like that? That could be. There is something called um, desert fever, I think it's called. Uh, it, huh. it's, it's a sort of virus that people can get. Uh, so that that's entirely possible. Um, I think that's probably what he's referring to. How about that? I had never heard of that before. People usually yeah. move to Arizona for for their health. That's what I always heard. Like yeah. all these famous people move there for you know trouble with breathing, and they moved out there for the good air. And I think I could be wrong, but I thought it was a situation where if you get that, you uh, you can't get away from it. Really, I don't. I, yeah, I, don't know. I think I don't that's kind of what. Details, mm. But I thought I heard something like that. Yeah, he was uh, said he was on antibiotics for six months. Wow! So that's a long time to be on that. Hey, are we do we're doing a show about? Uh, is it UFOs? Yes, let's get into oh. UFOs. So oh. let's. Uh, oh, oh, okay. You Sorry about that. Us. Yeah, yeah. How I dare did. you? I know. So yes, um, UFOs. My guest today is Chris Cogswell. Uh, again, I had him wow. not long ago, but. 
You know, it's it's. I talked about this where we've got this article that he wrote called, um, uh, you know, the science of proving an object was created by an extraterrestrial civilization. Uh, and I think that this topic is so vitally important right now because to the stars essentially believes they, they may have some anomalous materials, it seems like. Uh, in fact, the mm-hmm. New York Times story in December even mentioned materials that were retrieved uh, that Bigelow had and, and uh, Bigelow Aerospace, who was doing the work for the Pentagon uh, investigating UFOs and other things we know. So... Uh, there there has been more talk of that lately with To The Stars, this organization created by Tom DeLonge and, and the former head of that DOD program uh, on UFOs and, and other very high-level uh, retired officials. Um, so they've given a little bit of information, but just, you know, bits and pieces here and there. And it's kind of all over the place. So... Chris has done a great job in putting together, hey, if you really want to prove to the scientific community that you've got something from an extraterrestrial civilization or even anomalous, here's what you're going to have to do to do that. Now, his article begins with uh, more of kind of an overview. Uh, Then it gets really, really technical into the specific type of testing that would need to be done and what it's looking for. Uh, So what we wanted to do with this interview, or I wanted to do, was to really kind of uh, simplify it and just talk about the topics and try to stay away from the very technical science. Uh, And I'm glad we did because, you know, he brought up and we we thought of a a lot of different scenarios uh, that could affect uh, what may happen with this material whether it it's not proven to be something or, you know, it can't meet that really high bar that's going to be met uh, that science will put before, you know, anyone trying to uh, say that they have something like this. And even if that bar is met, what uh, could potentially be some of the issues around that? So, uh, again, I mean, it's it's a great conversation. So I really, really enjoyed it. Uh, and this is kind of exciting too. So my George Knapp interview, I, I made a transcript of that, that podcast, and I put that right. online yep. and that's getting very popular. It's creating a lot of discussion, which I thought it would, would, cause I thought it was a great interview. He revealed a lot of stuff, but one of the things he talked about was what a strong role religion played inside the government to get them to stop funding, uh, this sort, sort of work. And he hmm. referenced, uh, Nick Redfern that Nick Redfern had written about this kind of religious cabal. So next week I'm going to have Nick Redfern on and we're going to actually talk about that. Wow. Cause I have him on uh, tomorrow. How about that? Are you kidding? No. Can you believe it? Wow. Is it because of the George Knapp interview you got him? No, I have him for a whole different, different reason. Really? What topic are you guys going to discuss? Well, he's got a new book out, as he always does every five minutes. Oh, <laughs> he does. I know. I didn't even know that, actually. So, um, cool. Yeah. So you can't talk about what I'm going to talk about. That's right. I'll try <laughs> not to. He'll probably but. want to talk about his book anyway. So uh, that's kind of cool, though, actually. That's really interesting. <laughs> we both have him at the same time. I ought to yeah. just oh, give you a smack and oh well again yeah but that's wow. cool it's actually cool no more gentleman be... Martin yeah, yeah wow. no more gentlemen 
but it, it'll be neat because uh, we'll be talking about different topics. And Nick Nick is a, a wealth of information. Of course, he he's belting out his books on a regular basis, so it, it'll be great to talk to him. Plus, he's got that great English accent, as you say. Sounds yeah. even smarter. Yeah. Although that seems to be fading. Because now oh, his? he and because Nick, of Texas, yeah, Nick Redfern yeah. and Nick Pope, both of the uh, kind of uh, UFO experts uh, from the UK, are uh, here in the United States now. Right. Mm-hmm. Hmm. I think Nick's in Texas, right? I believe. Redfern. Yes. I think you're right. I'm pretty sure you're right. Yeah. yeah. So this will well, be fun. Great uh, shows coming up for the both of us. That's right. But before we get into our interview with Mr. Cogswell, uh, Dr. Cogswell, uh, let's go ahead and talk about some UFO news. All right, and I'll get us rolling. So on uh, the Open Minds today, I noticed UFO headlines. The first thing I opened was um, the title to this is No Place to Run, Lock Raven Reservoir's Forgotten UFO 60 Years Later. So just a couple of days ago on October 26 was the 60th anniversary of a UFO sighting that I had never heard of. And it's really, uh, it's really quite fascinating. Mm, yeah. So, um, and, and I love these, uh, you know, these substantial cases that, uh, you know, that they just keep coming up. Um, and they're really interesting. So it was around midnight on October 26, 1958. Alvin Cohen and Philip Small were taking a drive by Lock Raven Reservoir in Townsend. This is just outside of, it's actually a reservoir that feeds uh, the entire Baltimore area with their drinking water. Um, when, they, when they saw this, uh, an iridescent egg-shaped object that appeared above a bridge, so they inched closer to it, and all of a sudden the car just went dead. I love these uh, incidents as well. No headlights, no engine, no nothing. So... Uh, the the entire electrical system just had went down on them, so they felt like they had no place to run. And Small uh, told investigators uh, he was 27 at the time, uh, and he told them a couple of weeks later, according to an interview transcript, um, we probably would have uh, if we could have, but we were so terrified we probably would have run if they could have, but they were so terrified at uh, what we saw, he says. And Cohen, who was then 24 um, at the time, also um, did an interview with investigators. So it was 60 years ago, and um, the incident inspired UFO hunters throughout the years. Uh, I had never heard of this. I'm going to ask you a little bit about it myself. It launched an official Air Force investigation. And uh, after conducting interviews and examining the scene, the investigation officer, Second Lieutenant Bert Staples, wrote in the 1958 report, the UFO remains unidentified. It doesn't go into actually, you know, what happened after, usually their car starts and, you know, everything goes back to normal. But it does sound like, you know, they just felt like they were trapped and nowhere to go and they hid behind the car and, and watched this thing until it basically took off. And uh, so there is a uh, professor. Now, I have not heard of this gentleman either. And uh, his name is Greg uh, Ehigan. Um, he studies the history of UFOs. And uh, are you are you familiar with him? He's at uh, Penn State. No, I'm not at all. Uh, and it sounds, yeah, 
not at all. Uh, so it's interesting that uh, I didn't it say he's part of a skeptical group. I can't oh. remember for sure. That could be. Well, I, I looked into him a little bit already, and uh, he does have a website about uh, UFOs in the past, the history of UFOs. I didn't take that. It was skeptical, but, it, it you know, maybe maybe that's his take. I'm not sure. He talks about him through the uh, uh, through the 50, 40s and through the 50s, mostly. Interesting. Yeah, it looks like he's uh, written for Air and Space Magazine. Oh, yeah. Um, so, yeah, yeah it, I'll have to look more into this gentleman. But, uh, yeah, this is a – I saw this article. Great case. Have you heard of it before prior to seeing this? No, and that was interesting because you did say that, uh, you know, um, that it said it, it inspired – UFO researchers, but uh, maybe back in the day, but I'm not familiar with the case. I wasn't uh, until I read this article. Right, right. So, yeah, and, um, you know, it just it doesn't really talk about much of the aftermath with these two witnesses, really. But I'd like to I'd like to know if they ever talked later about it or if they just, you know, just uh, hit away from it like a lot of people seem to do. Mm hmm. Yeah, because there was a like there was a heat wave too. I, I forgot to mention that there was a noise, and when this thing took off, and like a heat wave that they could feel, and you know uh, they went to St. Joseph Hospital um, to to try to determine if there was any kind of uh, you know radiation burns or anything, and uh, uh, there there was some change in color, um, but nothing I guess that had to do with radiation. Mm-hmm. You know, like a almost like a tan he had, I guess, mm -hmm. a sunburn or something. Right, kind of like uh, Close Encounters, or uh, but that has been reported before, uh, which is really interesting. Right. Yeah. In fact, there's a case like that that is in the Hunt for the Skinwalker documentary. Have you watched that yet? I did. Yes. I yes. Did watch you remember that? that. Uh, I'm not remembering that. I think I'm. That was the Native American lady whose uh, neighbor... Oh, yeah, 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 yes, I do remember. he, he yeah. later mm -hmm. died of, uh, I think, cancer, and she felt that that may have been um, what it came from. But, uh, in fact, she was you know, emotional when she talked about it. But, right. uh, yeah, that is, you know... In and the Cash course, Landrum case, but that, yeah, you know, Cash that could have been a... That could have been radiation. a... radiation. Yeah, but that could have been a craft, uh, you know, a man-made craft mm -hmm. in particular. And then, of course, we're, uh, our buddy Lee Spiegel, nobody got burnt, but they got beamed by some sort of light as well uh, when right. you went to go look at his North sighting. Carolina. So, I mean, those cases are baffling because that's very credible. I mean, how can you mistake some beam of light hitting you, especially one that causes some sort of sunburn? And uh, really, really weird. Yeah. Yep, you can't explain that one away too easy. Yeah, so that's a great story. That's a great case. Uh, that's a great article. I, I, I recommend people look at that. In fact, we have that at the top of our UFO headlines at openminds.tv. Yeah, and I was lazy, so I just clicked on the first one and no, that's told good. the story. That's yeah. great. I put the, no, it is a good one. Try to put the best ones at the top. Uh, so, uh, you know... Speaking of historical cases from the 50s, uh, the uh, To the Stars is taking a little bit of heat uh, in that Tom DeLonge and Lou Elizondo went to Rome to to speak, I guess, with the, the 
there were officials in the government invited them to talk about the, uh, of course, the government program that Lou worked for and UFOs. And um, the lecture is now online, and I haven't watched it yet, but uh, hmm. in the videos, they show a photo from the 1952 incident uh, in which UFOs flew over the uh, the White House. Capitol. Mm -hmm. A great case. So uh, we've got, I think, a really good video at uh, the Open Minds TV YouTube page on this. It's in the featured uh, video section, so you can check that out. But, you know, I make a point in my video that uh, we do not know of any photos out there. The ones that are out there, the popular ones, there's one that was a recreation by a television show. And the other one is actually flares, light flares. Well, that second picture... Uh, they put in the lecture, and they said this was a real photo from the event when it's not. Uh, mm. So they got that wrong. Um, and so, of course, so many people just jump all over it. And, oh, my gosh, I got this wrong. I got this wrong. How terrible. How awful. But, um, uh, you know, I, I wish they would kind of at least check with somebody, maybe even yeah. this historian you were talking to, before they, um, you know, include stuff like that to vet it. But, uh, uh, they, I mean, I, yeah, they thoroughly made a mistake. Uh, in fact, I sent NICAP has an article uh, about the analysis of that photo, which is great to demonstrate, you know, this is, there are definitely flares inside the camera. Hmm. But, mm -hmm. and I sent that to Luce, but I haven't heard back yet. Um, I also thought, uh, just before you move on, um, I had heard that those were reflections of the lights on the ground. Have you ever exactly. heard that one? Yeah, that's yeah. where they were caused from. So a yeah. lot of people crop the photo. So you don't see all of the <laughs> light posts that are uh, on the stairs on the street level. Mm. Uh, the full photo, you see the lights uh, on the at on the street. And, mm -hmm. you know, they correspond exactly to the lights in the sky. And this happens quite a bit. Right. It's a common issue where people mistake. They take a picture uh, and they see lights in the sky and they, they're like, oh, my gosh, a UFO picture. Little do they know that they're actually flares uh, essentially caused reflections inside of the camera and the lens caused by bright lights when you're taking a dark kind of scene. And uh, and it's usually easily uh, provable because the configuration matches uh, exactly the lights that are reflecting and right. uh such as the case with this photo so um but what people have done who even know this is they crop the photo so you can't see the pictures that it came from to make it look as though you know that's not what this is but uh, uh it sleepy. is what it is so um my take is okay they stumbled on some historical information. I think that they should get some help so that doesn't happen again but still it's one Really, I don't think that big of a mistake. It's kind of obscure. The uh, the research that shows that is a uh, um, and, and regardless of of that picture, that case is extremely highly significant. So, um, you know, right? Uh, I, I think people have tried to explain it away from just that. Um, you know, like mm. debunk it when when it has so much more to do with you know radar and all that. Right. And I feel that the best telling of that story uh, is from the guy who was running 
Project Blue Book, the Air Force uh, program at the time, who wrote in depth about how all that went down, and it's fascinating and more credible, I think, than and than people realize. It's it's one of the most credible UFO cases. In fact, it's one of the few that Blue Book, if not the only one, where Blue Book people personnel were on site when all this went down. They saw the radar. Uh, uh, they saw everything, and and as uh, Rupelt, who is the guy who wrote the book, yeah. uh, pointed out. You know, the the results that the Air Force shared with the public were not the results of the investigation that Blue Book had come to. They had ruled out what the Air Force had told the public, which was this temperature inversion issue, which they certainly knew it was not that. At least the Air Blue Book investigators knew that. However, the Air Force uh, spokesperson and general... Samford, who told people this, he was not, he didn't even ask what Blue Book felt it was. They just went and told the public something. Mm. So, yeah. yeah. So, now, it is a great word- case. I don't think it's that big of a deal that they screwed it up, but, you know, um, I think it would behoove them to um, do their best to maybe get some consultation so that sort of thing doesn't happen. Is that the uh, was that the case where right after Sanford is uh, uh, talking about UFOs and uh, you can see it on YouTube and I think it's like in an old black and white mm-hmm. you know right after yep it, so that's that's what spurred that on yeah the, and I don't know why they talk kind of weird in the old days you know because <laughs> uh, it's black and white and he's like you know there are often extraordinary thing seen by very credible people. Oh, that's I mean, right. it makes a statement yeah. like that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so, yeah. but it's he kind of has times. that old timey talk. Yeah. Old timey talk. I love it. <laughs> yeah. So otherwise, yeah, there, there are some other fun stories out there for people to check out of. There's a, a sighting in Canada where the local newspaper talked to Chris Rukowski who's a Canadian uh, journalist and UFO researcher. He's great, and uh, that's pretty interesting. Um, But, you know, one of the things I really like is, uh, and it's pretty funny, is this tugboat abduction memorial. Oh, yeah. So Mm -hmm. this popped up, and um, in the battery, they say, so if you're in the area, it's near the Statue of Liberty. uh, This It's at a tugboat dock, right? Yeah, in, in New York Harbor. Um, so it's a statue of this like tugboat guy, you know, sailor and this alien, he's leaning next to an alien and it talks about this event that had taken place where this tugboat saw a UFO during the 1977 blackout and then disappeared. And so this is a whole memorial to it. There's even a video where these people were holding a parade and are doing these crew, a cruise uh, for this and and at this memorial, you know, you see this statue and behind it you see the uh, Statue of Liberty um, However, it's not real. It's actually an artist who put this all together. So it's an art installation It's gonna be up there for a month or so so definitely if you if you live in the area New York City or, or you're gonna be visiting go take the Stanton Ferry Island Ferry because that's a free way to go see the Statue of Liberty and then also go pass by and see this thing and take some pictures for us. Uh, but it's it's cool. I love the poster and I love the idea. I love the, the statue. The only bad part is it's only a matter of time 
before people start taking these images and making YouTube videos and claiming that this incident really occurred, <laughs> um, which is unfortunate because uh, mm. you know that's going to happen. Yeah, yeah. I think there was a, wasn't there a baby boom too also right after that? There's always, when there's massive blackouts, they always say uh, there's a baby boom nine months later. Have you ever heard that? I have I'll have to check out Snopes. Yeah. Yeah. Snope that one because, yeah. um, you know, that sounds kind of dubious to me, my friend. <laughs> well, you know, nothing else to do. A blackout, yeah. I guess. I don't know. Well, you got to watch out for looters and stuff. I guess they had a lot of looting and everything when that happened. Yeah, that always does happen. But we are out of time, so we've got to go. Aren't we? Yes. Wow. Thank yes. you so much for joining us, Martin. Of course, you can check out Martin at Podcast UFO. And Tune in for Nick Redfern. Yeah, with Nick Redfern. And uh, we'll be right back with Chris Cogswell after this short musical interlude. I am happy to welcome back to the show Chris Cogswell. Of course, it hasn't been long, has it? No, not too long. But the reason is I think your the article you wrote is pretty much, I mean, if To the Stars is claiming that they are examining anomalous material that uh, they haven't said the word extraterrestrial really, but I know that's kind of what they're thinking. Um, sure. But still, you know, um, that's what, we're all thinking about too is you know that that's kind of the goal and it's filtered but what would it take to really prove that you have something anomalous and that's what i want to talk about and we have to dumb it down just because um you know super geniuses like you or i can figure out all the minutia of the science but the average goofball and actually i'm not a super genius i'm the average goofball and it mostly goes way over their head and even your article, I know you tried to dumb it down, but a lot of it was going over my head too. So, um, so yeah. So, and I think that it's a fun conversation. Uh, just the basics, even. Absolutely. No, I'm I'm with you there. I mean, it's such an important, you know. I mean, just to preface it, I guess, right? That's one thing. It's one area where I think you could get scientists interested in this kind of stuff, is in. Just talking about this from, you know, what would the science be like, right? What what would we need to do? Um, it's kind of a nice way to, I think, uh, add some gravitas to the field, but also to get around the sticky situation or the sticky conversation of, well, what are these things, right? I mean, we mm. don't really know, so it's it's kind of it's kind of interesting. Yeah. Uh, yes. What? Go ahead. <clears throat> And, you know, I, I think a lot of people get, especially in the general public, get really frustrated, uh, especially when it comes to debate. But science is largely about debate. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's, you know, really the the idea of science as a kind of investigative tool or the method of science as an investigative tool. I mean, we all learned it in school, right? It's you put up a hypothesis, you then test it with variables and controls, and then, 
you know, if you've proven your, uh, if you've proven the hypothesis, then you kind of move forward with something else. And if you've disproven it, you, uh, move away to some, you know, some other option, um, in the kind of bigger world of academic science, what we actually try to do is prove things by inversion almost. So instead of, you know, cause truth itself, you know, you can never prove that, um, for example, with these materials, you'll never be able to definitively prove that it came from, uh, somewhere else, somewhere besides earth, right? You'll never be able to definitively prove that it, uh, came from a, an alien civilization or something else. Right. I mean, and that's not necessarily even what to the stars is hoping to do, but, you know, that's kind of, I think, what a lot of people are hoping that this quest would find. Well, and so, what do you mean by that, that no one would ever be able to prove it? So it's because it's kind of, uh, it's just from a logical standpoint or from a philosophical standpoint, I guess, right? You can never, uh, you can't prove a hypothesis true. You can try, but proving something true is is a very actually difficult thing, right? So, ex- so for example... Um, what, and that's what we talk about in this article. What would it take t- to prove to us that a, this material came from a ship or something from a UFO or from another civilization outside of our universe that, or outside of our solar system, even whatever that would essentially the easiest way to get to that truth would be to disprove all the other options. So it's man-made or it came from earth or that it uh, is naturally occurring, Right. So essentially because we don't have – you don't have something, another thing created by an alien civilization to compare it to. But we do have other Earth samples, other materials generated on, on the planet here, things that we can engineer that you can compare against. So it's because of that lack of proof, right? It's kind of like saying, you know, mm-hmm. prove to me that I am not psychic. Mm-hmm. You can't. You can't prove that, right? But what you can prove – is uh, kind of the symptoms around that, right? I can't, um, you know, I cannot predict what you'll do tomorrow or in the next five minutes. I cannot, you know, think of the object that you're thinking of or holding in your hand. I cannot uh, do all this other stuff. And so it ends up being more of a, again, you're building up disproofs of the central hypothesis. And in, in that way too, your your methodology, your hypothesis gets stronger. If it's able to withstand all the attempts to disprove it, then, um, that suggests that something true, there's something true within your hypothesis. That's kind of the way that science gets done at mm-hmm. an academic kind of level. Which, got it. So we can uh, prove that it is not a, a whole myriad of things, everything we can even think of. Uh, but, uh, and that by, in turn, proves that, uh, you know, uh, uh, at least you're on the right path, I guess. Or, or Right, it, it kind of, you kind of are left... Right. It's, it's like that old Sherlock Holmes quote, right? If, uh, you know, if you've ruled out all of the possible things and all that's left is the impossible. Mm-hmm. Right. It's kind of the same idea. Right. Which I think that, you know, a lot of us kind of hold to that in this field and it frustrates a lot of people interested in UFOs. So, for instance, you know, uh, like in the Open Mind UFO Forum, if someone posts a UFO there, they're going to get a lot of people saying it could be this, it could be that. And essentially, it's just that everybody in there is interested in the topic and is looking to prove or or find, you know, that smoking gun, a great picture. But the first thing we have to do is uh, ourselves is prove the null hypothesis as try to 
um, figure out what it is and kind of debunk it ourselves first. And that, I think, is is a credible way to go about this sort of thing, even though some people get frustrated because they're like, all you guys want to do is debunk my sighting. Well, in a way, but that's because we're looking for something truly anomalous. Right. I mean, that's that's the funny thing, right? I mean, all goods, I mean, you know, uh, all great scientists of any of the big fields that you can think of are essentially debunkers of their own field, right? They they attempt consistently to debunk other people's theories or prove that a prevailing notion isn't true or whatever. You know, I mean, there's a reason that all of the big scientific breakthroughs of the last, you know, uh, I mean, forever, right? It's, yeah. There's a reason why those breakthroughs are always oh, man, I did an experiment and it seems to suggest that this hypothesis isn't true, right? It's it's never, you know, um, it's, it's essentially you you try to break your field until you get uh, to something that does break within it. And then you're like, well, OK, so then what does that mean? How does my field have to change mm -hmm. to really progress and account for this new piece of physical evidence or this new piece of uh, data that we have? So, you know, it's. I think there is something to be said about keeping an open mind and being um, – what's the word? You know, when a physicist uh, decides that they are going to try to create an experiment to debunk or break the idea of the speed of light or try to find something that breaks out open, uh, you know, general relativity or something, they're doing it with uh, a, a, a true love of their field, right? They're doing it with good intentions in mind. Mm -hmm. So I think that there is a distinction between – of course, you know, someone who is uh, well-meaning in the field here of, say, you know, uh, UFOs or whatever anomalous phenomena and someone who just wants to um, – what's the word? Just wants to tear it down, right? There is a distinction there. But there also is a significant distinction between, you know, uh, people that take in new evidence and, and try to find those good pieces and people that are just op so open to everything that, you know, uh, you can't really pragmatically move forward with any kind of good investigation. Yep. And um, I think that is what makes this conversation right now to me so exciting is that I feel that, you know, more legitimately – uh, we've moved into the realm where this uh, this field has the possibility of potentially at least we're looking into we're moving into the stage where now it's time I think we can really uh, we have there's an organization with the resources to do some real legitimate um, if they do it right which hopefully they will uh, and they'll be criticized uh, but it'll be more of a mainstream process there's enough visibility here that whatever results they come to are going to get some uh, mainstream uh, criticism and, and go through that process of, okay, you think you've got this, but now it's time for all the skeptics and the real scientists, uh, the, the other scientists come in and start to uh, bash it or at least uh, process it really, you know, and figure out if they're really onto something. And uh, that's what's exciting. So we need to, I think, educate ourselves as a community then to uh, know what to look for. And that's what I think your article is, is really helpful. Yeah, that's what that's what we're trying to do, right? That's what our entire group is trying to do is to use our collective uh, specialties, our collective knowledge to produce documents and things that the UFO community and just the general interested public can use to then um, – first off, educate themselves about the science itself, 
But then also be able to, if you are an investigator, you are someone who wants to look into this more fully, have some way of picking apart the evidence, right? Because as it stands now, I mean, you know, if if I said to, um, I mean, if I said to anyone that, you know, oh, isotope testing is, uh, you know, not a useful tool or, uh, you know, they should really be looking for crystallographal or crystal crystallography they should be looking towards crystallography for things like engineered defects or um you know unnatural layering or uh evidence of porous you know of poor uh engineering or alterations you, you know neither of those things are really something that the public can pick apart and understand or mm-hmm. even have an opinion on you know because it's just it's out of uh, out of the common sort of lexicon or out of the common view of most people. They just have never studied that stuff, right? It's not even taught – it's not taught at, um, you know, even the high school level, let's say. So, you know, it just – it becomes so rarefied that it really is impossible to distinguish between good um, good academic science and uh, kind of, you know, not so good or, or academic science that maybe is going to be uh, rightfully, you know, uh, picked apart by uh, well-meaning scientists. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So, and that point is really important as well, rightfully, um, because yeah. it is rightful. It's not a conspiracy. It is them doing their job and being the gatekeepers to make sure that, you know, we adopt good science because bad science can be dangerous. Uh, and and uh, and that's the process we want it to go through, because if it survives that process, then really you've got something where you've got, you know, uh, something that's a big deal. Yeah, and that's and that's the important thing here, right? Is I think I think the community generally, or at least some some parts of it, have really become very entrenched in in dogma. Have become very entrenched in. You know, you sit you sit within your own corner, right? And you just have people reinforcing your ideas continuously, and uh, that doesn't get you anywhere. You just end up agreeing with the same things, right, over and over again. And so, uh, you know, I I am very hopeful actually that the work that say to the Stars Academy is doing will kind of allow for more of us, uh, you know, I guess you know, irritants in the oyster. Right to uh, to come in and 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 maybe you know come up with something really valuable in the end for this field and for the public generally. I mean, uh, you know who you know. It's just it's it's I think very interesting. I think healthy debate is good in any field. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, I always tell this I always tell this story to students that talk to me or whatever. Right, but um, you know, I have been to academic conferences that have you know nearly devolved into fistfights. Right, like science is not. Um, Science is just as rambunctious and just as heated or it can be as any other field where people are getting together and, and debating, right? Um, the difference is that in science, uh, generally, you will come to some piece of evidence that then proves one side right over the other. Um, and then the other side has to eat humble pie, right? So <laughs> it um, it's interesting here in this field, I think, there have ne- there's really not been very much uh, – acceptance by the general community or the parts of the community that are vocal when things aren't true or proved to be wrong or whatever. And so this at least is a concrete thing. They're pointing out, this is the test we're doing. This is what we're trying to do. It is something uh, provable, 
finally, right? It's it's so I think the methodology or the idea behind it is right. I'm just in this article, like I said, not certain that the testing protocols that have been at least suggested in the public so far are going to be adequate. I don't know if they're going to be enough. Mm -hmm. Which I think that's important, too, at least for those of you who understand this sort of thing. Uh, Because, for instance, uh, the SCU, which I think we're both part of, Scientific Coalition for Ufology. What's kind of neat in that is there are actually some legitimate scientists who are out there uh, in uh, as part. In fact, we have uh, this lady who's part of the board, and she's always checking the rest of us, which is great. You know, she's like, no, you can't do this. If you want this to be, uh, you know, her mind is in in the idea of if this is presented to mainstream science, it's going to reflect on her. Um, but also uh, it, it reflects on this field. If, if this is what we have to do, if we're going to be make an impact, if we want to do this the right way, the way that the scientific community will recognize and it's part of the normal process. Uh, and that's where we need people like you will to be able to share with us what that is. And so we can kind of police ourselves because really um, to the stars is kind of championing all of us in that way. And uh, we want their data to be as good as possible so that it is as impactful uh, as possible as well. Because, uh, you know, uh, really, even the more that we all get excited or or even critical, uh, it's just because we're that passionate about it and really that that passionate about the topic and hoping that, you know, they uh, represent us all in in a positive way. Absolutely. So, you know, and that's kind of the the starting point of the article is, you know, not even really because we don't really we don't really directly mention to the stars. Right. But it's coming from the place of. So they released this this video on their Project Adam initiative. And in the initiative, they mention, you know, they have uh, they have Hal Pudoff, who did uh, some research back in kind of his heyday on uh, materials, quantum materials for for some applications, and then kind of went into industry and wasn't really involved in, um, I get you know you know whatever went into industry. The uh, the experiments though that are being proposed by To the Stars to date are uh, not experiments that you know not even they would not be on my top twenty list of things to try, right as a first pass. So when that video came out, I was very concerned. Um, that, you know, this doesn't look like it's going in the right direction. So they proposed, uh, essentially they mentioned two experiments. They mentioned isotopic testing, which would be, uh, you know, isotopic and elemental analysis. So elemental analysis is basically finding out what compounds, what elements are part of the material itself. Now, the problem with that kind of testing is that we don't expect chemistry to be much different or physics to be much different in the outside universe, right? So unless they are, unless they find something truly extraordinary, like a element that has never existed before or an element that we don't have any access to on earth, um, that experiment is essentially going to be just as a baseline to do other experiments off of, Mm -hmm. right? So, um, you can imagine, I mean, we have, you know, quite a few known elements to date, even if they find an element that is uncommon on the earth, all of those elements have been generated in a lab. Um, you know, some of them, the, the very heavy elements, right? So the ones, those are ones that are produced only in collider reactors, uh, 
you know, places where essentially you are banging two atoms together at very, very high velocities and uh, creating a very unstable molecule or unstable atom, I should say, for, you know, we're talking, you know, millionths of a second, right? Very, very short periods of time. So there is a very small chance, I suppose, that they might be able to find, you know, element 255 or something crazy that doesn't exist to date. Um, they might be able to find something like that in this in this material, but uh, that that is a very very long shot, mm-hmm. right? And uh, so that that's the first test that we're, they're kind of proposing or a baseline test. The next one is isotopic or isotope analysis. Now, for listeners, what an isotope is? So you have you have your elements on the periodic table. Elements are defined by their number of protons which are the positive charges inside of the nucleus of the atom. And the atom, you know, you can imagine it's like a, uh, a center, which is the nucleus, a very, very small center that is composed of protons, which give it its positive charge, and then uh, neutrons, which are only mass. They have no uh, – essentially they're like a glue that holds the nucleus together. And then you have the outer part of the atom. So around this nucleus is floating or kind of whizzing by constantly a cloud of electrons. And those electrons are are, uh, in kind of discrete areas of probability where they can float around thanks to our understanding of quantum mechanics, right? Um, But those electrons are negatively charged and essentially have no mass. So the atom itself or the element – is defined by the number of protons. So if I have, you know, if I have one proton, no matter how many neutrons or electrons or whatever, I have a hydrogen atom, right? Okay. What a what an isotope is is you have more or less neutrons. So for example, you might have a you might have a carbon atom that has uh, twelve neutrons, and you would call that carbon twelve, right? Um, you might have a carbon atom with 20 neutrons. You would call that carbon 20. And so each of those isotopes are depending on the ratio of uh, of neutrons to protons in the nucleus. They're more or less radioactive, more or less stable, essentially. On the planet Earth, we have average values of isotopes that exist just from radioactivity, just from the, the way that the planet was formed, all this other stuff. One area that isotopic testing, isotopic testing, I guess, has been used is in the analysis of of meteorites or asteroid pieces. So a piece of debris falls to the Earth. We test it. It has isotopes that are out of the range of normal amounts on the planet Earth. And so we suggest that it must be a meteorite or it must be from space. That is really the only thing that an isotope test can tell us is whether or not the material is um, like Earth samples or unlike Earth samples. Now, the problem for groups like, say, TTSA or other groups that do this material analysis is that the range of isotopes found on the Earth's surface are varied significantly. So just because you have a certain kind of fingerprint, you know, it's not like a fingerprint, let's put it that way. It's more like a range of values that are possible to exist on Earth. So isotope testing, isotope testing is essentially kind of a grab bag. It's, you know, um, 
if you took a sample of soil from an area near a nuclear reactor uh, or a nuclear explosion or something, or like say Chernobyl, let's say a, a nuclear release, that would have a different, a significantly different isotope profile than a piece, you know, than a similar sample of dirt in Connecticut, right? And the, the sample on Connecticut, in Connecticut, would be significantly different than the isotope profile you would find in a sample uh, in Nevada because of the radioactive uh, weapons testing that was done there. So it's it, it requires a lot of nuance to analyze these isotope tests. And so just saying to the public that this isotope profile didn't match our sample that we used as our uh, kind of as our uh, as our control test that doesn't really mean a lot of a lot of it doesn't do a lot of good for us because um unless it's again so far out of the range of possibility that we don't know of it existing on earth at all right um it's really not going to do us much good it's it's not going to be a valuable piece of information all right. Well, we are out of time, but essentially what you're saying is that's just not definitive of a test. Exactly. Gotcha. Okay. Well, uh, we've got to go to break. So if you're listening on the radio, you'll hear a commercial break. Uh, those of you listening on the podcast will hear a short musical interlude. I hope you enjoy it. It's actually from a gentleman named Systematics. He created the the music just for the show. Or I, I think he allowed me to use anything from the CD he did, but he was a listener. And I don't know where he is. So Systematic, if you're still out there, I know your your page, your SoundCloud page is gone. Uh, I'd love to talk to you and, and catch up, say hi. But anyway, we will be back shortly with Chris Cogswell. are back listening to Open Mind UFO Radio, and we have with us Chris Cogswell, chemical... What would your title be? I know you have a PhD in chemi- chemical engineering. Is Are you a chemical engineer currently? Yep. Yeah, so I am... Uh, currently, I am a chemical engineering consultant. Okay. Great. Uh, and you're consulting us now. So <laughs> here is uh, the question. So the steps, what we need to prove, and I think that you outlined three great steps and we'll need to talk about this. So the first thing is you would have to demonstrate, uh, and I should qualify this because what we're looking for in this scenario is something that is extraterrestrial. Now, um, what, uh, to the stars is looking for is simply something anomalous, which is great. You know, something that we don't know what it is, potentially something, uh, created from an uh, advanced extraterrestrial civilization. But if we were to prove, which of course many of us are interested in attempting to do, that something was from an extraterrestrial civilization, that the criteria would be first, we'd have to prove it was made from space. But that alone uh, doesn't prove that it's from an extraterrestrial civilization, right? 
Right. So, yeah, so the basically what we set out in the paper was uh, if what your hypothesis is, is that, you know, this material comes from an advanced extraterrestrial civilization, the way that I propose, at least, that you would try to prove that or at least, you know, put that question in a rational, provable way or testable way is first, does it come from space? If it has a signature or uh, properties or whatever that suggests that it is not from Earth, then that would be a kind of a check mark in the you know interesting material category, I guess. The next would be, does it show signs of engineering? Um, so that would be, you know, does it look like a natural material or is it unnatural? Was it created by someone? Um, does it seem to have engineering or, or alterations of some purpose or towards some purpose? And then the third uh, category would be, uh, does it show properties or applications or things that we don't know about on Earth? So things that our science cannot do or have not thought to do or are uncommon enough that, you know, someone coming into a lab with a material um, saying, I found this in my backyard, you know, um, it's not something that the public would have access to, to give to this team. You know, in the first, if the first one is true, but the other two are not, then it might be an asteroid. It might be something else. If the second one is true, but the first one isn't, so it's engineered, but it's not from space, it might have come from a lab. It might have been altered even by someone in their backyard with a furnace or something, right? There's all kinds of weird things you can do to a material at home even. Um, and then the third one really I think is kind of the only one on its own that would be uh, something like a smoking gun, right? If it had properties that we don't anticipate or know about in the scientific literature – that suggests it has some, you know, uh, I guess you would say secretive or mysterious source, right? I mean, it could still come from Earth. It might be a piece of an advanced, you know, ship or something, right, that we don't know about in the public. But uh, to prove that it is not only unknown, but that it is unknown and from another civilization out there, uh, I think you you really need all three, or at least the first two with a hint of the third to uh, really move forward with that as, as something you could put forward as a possibility even. Mm -hmm. And I think this is what kind of gets people confused too because they're like, well, it probably is because, you know, the witness said they saw this this uh, craft and it came in and dropped this material then took off at a crap fast speed and then the material was analyzed and it met a couple of the criteria you know it, it, it uh, was really strange not something strange enough uh, it's the type of thing we've engineered before but uh, you know and and they don't get that okay there's a there's probability there but that does not scientifically prove that that that's what it is and an example of where you know uh, something may or may not be what it is is uh, the the Mars asteroid. I mean, there's still some de de uh, debate about that. Uh, this asteroid had what appeared to be life, uh, signs of life. But, uh, you know, and, and this has happened before where some scientists say, look, this is life from another planet. And other scientists say, no, uh, it's possible that when it landed here on Earth, it was contaminated by Earth organisms. And those are right. just Earth organisms. And even though those may be, we may have already uh, evidence of, or at least extraterrestrial life, we can't prove that it is. Yeah, absolutely. And that's the thing that, I mean, we even say in the article, right, if, if, 
if someone, you know, if some some guy collects a material in his backyard and he brings it to my lab and it it turns out that it's from space, that is an amazing achievement for just, you know, that on its own is amazing that this guy found this material, right? So, you know, you know, we we try not to put any kind of I guess qualifications on you know, is the witness making it up? Is the witness lying? Do the witness tamper with it? Whatever. It's just simply, you know, at, at its face, this material comes in. You've never met the witness. You have no idea of its providence. But someone tells you, I think this came from a ship of some, you know, alien civilization or whatever. Then these are the kind of steps that I would at least take as a material scientist to uh, verify or, or, or test that, that suggestion, right? Um, because, yeah, I mean, it's... You know, it, science is very, very slow moving. Science is very stubborn. I think academic science is very stubborn. So, you know, there are things that say uh, industry, which is kind of driven by money, of course, is willing to try or willing to suggest that science itself is not willing to suggest or try. So, uh, you know, there are there are all kinds of uh, stop gaps here to this thing, right? I mean, we might find a material – that is all, has all of these properties. It's anomalous. It, uh, it seems to show engineering, and it it has evidence that it, it comes from a non-Earth source. And there would still potentially be people that would say that's just one sample is not enough, right? There's 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 vari- there's variation here. There's whatever. The point is that eventually, if we as a field get good at testing these things and understanding them and, and seeing them as for what they are then we may be able to eventually kind of, you know, eventually you come up with enough evidence that it, it, it just becomes obvious that it's stubbornness keeping the other side from accepting your proposal, mm-hmm. right? So, and I mean, and that's what that's what happens, honestly, with, it's what happened with quantum mechanics. It's what happened with the germ theory of disease. It's it's what happened with, uh, you know, the, the sort of heliocentric planetary model, right? I mean, it, it comes up again and again in science. It's, you know, uh, as one of my professors would say, the proof is in the pudding. So, you know, uh, eventually there's going to be enough proof that uh, there just is no rational way to discount all of it. Mm-hmm. And with this arena, we've we've got a little bit higher of a bar than your typical scientific uh, area. And I think that's because of what Carl Sagan said. You know, he put it well that extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence in this would be an extremely extraordinary claim. And so I'm wondering what you think. I don't know that in other uh, pursuits of science, provenance is as important, but some of the material, and I believe some of the material they're even looking at, to the stars I mean, um, is, is has been submitted to individuals an- anonymously. So let's say one of these materials uh, for which we have no provenance or, or perhaps not even the ability to figure out where it came from, just some anonymous source uh, whose, you know, contact information or, or, or identity is just not available. Um, that would probably create an issue as well, because let's say it is, uh, it does meet the criteria you're talking about. The next question would be, and do you think this would be a, a, a big kind of uh that big of an issue if if people are like okay well the science is there it does look like it's something made from space uh, it's something we haven't seen before uh it's intelligently constructed um you know we don't have the technology for this and don't know of anybody doing this uh however we don't know where it comes from 
I actually don't. I, I don't know if it would be. So for the initial premise, which is that this is a material that suggests that it is from an advanced, uh, an advanced place or an mm-hmm. advanced company, a civilization, whatever you want to call them. The provenance of the material, where it came from, would not, I think, matter as much in that sense. Mm. Now, to dig deeper, to kind of uh, you know, sharpen the pencil, I guess you'd say, on where the source is. So, for instance, let's say we do find that a material fits all these criteria, right? So it's engineered, we, it has properties we don't know of, and it seems to have suggested that it comes from space. That now opens up a whole can of worms because, okay – well, it fits all those criteria just because it is properties or things that the public doesn't know about doesn't mean that it is things that no one on earth knows about. Mm-hmm. That there isn't some, you know, this is from a company somewhere, right? This is some advanced propulsion system made by the government or, um, you know, what what have you, right? And so I think that right. if if we are able to pick that apart, though, and determine um, sort of – you know, where this technology points to, then I think we would be able to, in some sense at least, begin to back analyze, okay, there's only this many, you know, so for example, let's say we find that the material is does seem to be engineered. And what I mean by that is it has structure and properties that go together in a way that are unnatural, that, that would not normally occur. Now, one issue that I think the public has, and this is, I think, potentially a, a trap that To the Stars is falling into, at least as far as I can tell from the stuff they've put out, is that the range of possible structures or or things that, that we have found naturally occurring on the planet Earth are immense, right? So materials are, you know, they mention often layers. Um, I, I happen to have done my PhD research on the creation of layered materials for nanoengineering. Um, for for various applications, uh, layered materials show up in nature all the time. Layered oxides, we have oxides, we have clays that are naturally layered that seem to have odd, uh, kind of odd layering that you wouldn't expect, but that are again completely natural. Um, there's all kinds of things that might look like engineering that would not actually be engineering, and that's why it's so important to do kind of the gamut of tests that we run through in the paper, or at least in my opinion, it is important to run through those tests. Um, however, let's say, for example, we find out that this material appears to have been built atom by atom. Now, there are a lot of labs actually doing research like this. It's called atomic vapor deposition. Um, there's all kinds of other sorts of names for it. But the general idea is you have an ultra-high vacuum chamber. So essentially, you know, one or two atoms inside of this container. Um, you then shoot a plasma beam of individual atoms at a surface of a very well-polished, well-cleaned material, and you can force those atoms to grow on that surface in a way that is directed by you, the engineer. Now, this kind of work is obviously difficult. It is uh, very time-consuming. It's you know very kind of uh, nitpicky in, in what you have to do. But essentially, you can build a material that's never existed on the planet before uh, because you can direct the crystal structure of the material. If we find, for example, then, that there is evidence of a perfectly generated crystal in that way, there's only a couple of places on the planet Earth that we would expect it to come from. Mm-hmm. 
And so that in itself gives us a clue as to who has created this or where it's come from or whatever. Right. So, uh, you know, and I mean, I think I'm sure your listeners are thinking now to themselves, you know, well, I, I think their list of the list of suspects, <laughs> if it is something like this, that hits this thing would be, you know, very wealthy companies, wealthy nations, places with uh, significant scientific uh, knowledge or, or uh, facilities, backgrounds, what have you. And I think all that is true. So in that sense, the that's where the question of where did the material come from? Who is this person that gave it out? That's where it is going to be important. But ultimately, some of these materials, there might only be, you know, one or two people on the planet that have ever generated them in a lab, you know? Um, mm -hmm. Right. And that, that adds also what if it is a material where, uh, you know, people go search for whether or not this technology exists, but a, a corporation uh, or even a, a government contract but or just a, a, a corporation doesn't want to share that it's a still a secret project. It's still something that they are not sharing this proprietary technology that it exists or, or the nature of it with the public. So they don't want to come forward. Now what's, what's fascinating is if once we discover material like this, the cat is out of the bag, mm -hmm. right? It's that's over. It's the, you know, the, the beauty of, I guess a proprietary material is that you don't have to patent it. It is just yours or your company's or whoever's for as long as it takes someone to discover how to do it or how you made it, what your trick was, right? If To The Stars finds a material that has, you know, uh, I mean, some of the suggestions that are out there floating around the internet, you know, uh, which I think are kind of, um, I think are a little bit, I mean, they're, they're very much so putting the cart before the horse, but you know, let's say they discover a material that is that has anti-gravity properties somehow, right? Who knows? Let's say they find – I mean forget that even. Let's say they find a material that is able to store energy in a very, very efficient way or a material that is, you know, in my opinion, the most likely thing if we are thinking this comes from a craft – and this is kind of what I think the next article will be on – is what do we think the most likely – if we do find a material – what is its most likely application? In my mind, the most likely application is probably heat shielding, probably radiation shielding on the outer surface of a ship or craft, right? Mm. If we find a material that is able to withstand or even heal itself like some of our materials on Earth can do um, from radioactivity or can you know, uh, block it completely or do all kinds of other things, once we find that material, suddenly the – economic impulse to publicly disclose that actually we're the ones that first discovered this. We have it. We are able to make money off of it. I think that might actually become a factor where if they discover this material and they put it out there for the public, like, Oh my God, look at what we found. The person who originally discovered it or the group or whatever, um, assuming it is an earth group, I don't think we'll be able to withstand the need or draw of, um, still retaining its secrets or making sure that they are the ones that reap the most benefits. Which makes a lot of sense. And, and it makes it, it, it uh, elicits in my mind this, this scenario in which 
and materials discovered. And for the most part, you know, you talk to like Nick Pope when they were doing their investigations, they didn't really care so much about the question of who they are or where they come from, but how we can exploit uh, the phenomena uh, in in a manner of such as if they received a material like this, uh, less attention to investigating who it is or where, you know, who who brought it here, but more, how can we exploit this? And that would be the perfect solution. Well, yeah. let's make this a proprietary material because we'll then line our spacecraft with it because the solutions right now for radiation shielding are pretty heavy. Um, for yep. instance, I did a talk about how one of the things they're looking at is aligning, you know, spacecraft with water or with their material. Um, and, you know, the, the, the astronauts have to huddle in an area that has this, you know, large amount of protection around them. Uh, of course, if we found a material, that would be a really big deal. Yes, yeah, it's, it's actually interesting. That was my one of my first projects was um, was looking at the potential to create a nano because so hmm. nanomaterials, uh, layered nanomaterials are particularly good at actually shielding from radiation because of the number of pores that are within the material. So, you know, when uh, when a radioactive particle hits a surface, it, shielding from specific types of radiation, let me put it that way, right? Um, you can potentially disrupt, uh, you know, the energy from a gamma wave coming through, or you can literally stop the material defects of um, knock-on radiation hitting your crystal structure and causing damage to the material itself because the material is so porous or has so many kind of sinkholes, you know, literally places where damage can't propagate anymore that it, uh, radiation can't travel very far through it. Uh, so that is an application that we are working on on earth for these layered nanomaterials, right? There's a lot of NASA uh, grants and contracts with that kind of idea in mind, you know, so I don't. I, I think that that would be a sensible first place to look for that third uh, hypothesis, right? That third idea of it is technology we don't have. Well, if if we found a material that was able to withstand radiation uh, significantly, or you know, uh, camouflage itself, or uh, whatever, you know, is able to withstand extreme uh, g forces, extreme speeds, extreme colds, right? Any of that kind of stuff would be. Uh, very, very interesting to science and would honestly would make the people who discover it not rich instantly, but pretty rich in like a couple of years. <laughs> right. You know, and, I, mean, I mean, these guys and this is something we can't forget. And we're pretty much out of time. Unfortunately, it flies. Uh, these guys have uh, connections at the highest, highest level. Chris Mellon, the last name Mellon is the Mellons. So when you're talking, you know, um, melon banking and, you know, these, this is big, big, big time. So these guys have, and I think that's, that's going to be a good thing too, because, uh, anything they do is going to get, uh, attention. So, uh, yeah, that they, they are heavily, heavily connected, but yeah, again, absolutely. they're also connected with industry. So someone could tell them, Hey, you know what? we could make millions off of this and build spacecraft. So that's where we'll see what happens. 
I a lot of super super interesting ideas. This conversation's so fun, uh, partially because it's not as pie in the sky as it used to be. Now we're getting to uh, where some of these scenarios that we're talking about maybe things we're confronted with soon. So uh, you are uh, doing your podcast, Mad Scientist. Uh, your logo is perfect for this time of year. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, it's pretty good. Uh, but uh, is there anything you wanted to plug? I guess before we've we've got to end, and we're just gonna have to. C- carry on this conversation in a future show that will make sure is not too distant in the future. Yeah. Um, I mean, no. So our, our, our kind of collective of people continues to do work. If you are interested in, in helping out in some way, interested in getting involved potentially as a scientifically minded person or an academic or whatever, um, shoot us an email. You can reach my personal email is Chris F Cogswell at gmail.com. And, uh, and that's it. Be on the lookout for more articles. All right. That, that's funny. My Gmail is my first name, middle initial, last name altogether as well. <laughs> it's Whoa. a good one. Yeah, Great it is. Great minds. Great minds. Man. Exactly. Just like I talked about earlier. <laughs> but it, actually, I'm the goofball. So thank you so much, Chris, for joining us again. We'll talk again soon. Okay. Sounds good. Thank you so much to Chris Cogswell for joining us once again on the show. Don't forget to check him out on his podcast, the Mad Scientist podcast. Very cool. You'll see it because uh, it, it's very appropriate for this time of year. It's this pumpkin with this like smoke coming out. Very cool. Jack-o'-lantern type of thing. So check him out. He, he's great. I also want to to remind you all that I've got my live show on YouTube going on every Thursday at 6 p.m. Arizona time called UFOs Seriously Live. So check that out. I go over UFO news and some of the other space stuff that I'm writing about, and I answer questions from people in the chat. Also, a lot of conversation about all of this news goes on at Open at the Open Minds UFO uh, Facebook group. So join that. It is a closed group, but just ask to join and, and we'll get you in there. It's just closed so we can kick out all those boneheads who, uh, you know what it is, those trolls who just kind of derail the conversation. Uh, we want constructive conversation going on there, education and, and uh, helpful discussion. You know, it's possible to d- discuss things we disagree on civilly, believe it or not. You can also go to openminds.tv and, of course, find all the news, and you'll see a link to my Patreon there. And at that site, I'm linking some of the other stuff that I'm doing. So, for instance, I have a new YouTube site called The Alejandro Advantage where I'm kind of doing some space videos and other stuff. Uh, so check that out. And, of course, check out the UFO Congress at ufocongress.com. We've got uh, uh, more information going up there, but actually there's another YouTube channel for UFOcongress.com where we've got more UFO lectures going on. And of course, on our video on demand, you can watch hundreds of lectures, including we have all of the 2018 lectures up there. So you could check that out. And then finally, openminds.tv is where you're going to find all of this stuff. So Go check it out and, of course, follow us on social media. Otherwise, I want to thank everybody who helped out the show. Of course, thanks to our guest, Chris Cogswell. Uh, don't forget AlienCon. I want to thank them. They're going to have me uh, speak at their event coming up here in Baltimore, November 9th through 11th. Uh, you can find out more uh, at AlienCon, thealiencon.com. 
And I want to thank uh, Martin Willis for joining us with the news at the beginning. Check him out on Podcast UFO. I want to thank Systematics for the bumper music. Caleb Hanks for the opening and close music. You can find out more about him at openminds.tv on the Open Mind UFO radio page. And finally, I want to thank you-know-who, you, the listener, for being here all the time. If any of you live in the Baltimore area and you're going to be at that conference, be sure to come by the UFO Congress uh, booth and say hi or say hi if you're able to attend one of my lectures. It's going to be a lot of fun. So thank you all so much for joining us this week. We've got a great show next week with Nick Redfern. Until then, adios, muchachos.